Today's sermon text comes from Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, and continues through Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. Now, a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra'ah and the other Pu'ah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the river Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and, and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Hear the word of the Lord. May God grant us wisdom and courage for understanding and interpretation.
Most of you no doubt know that I'm from Illinois, which if you know anything about Illinois, it is a state wrought with political difficulty. Chicago is largely blue in orientation. Most of the state is red in orientation. So Chicago often dictates the direction for the rest of the state politically. But in my state, it doesn't matter if you've had a Republican governor or a Democrat governor. They're probably now in jail. <laughs> Both sides keep getting thrown in the clink. And we just finally, back in Illinois, passed a budget. It's a difficult place to navigate politically. So after the last Republican governor who went to Statesville, that's a prison, after he went off to jail, the Republican Party gathered around, and it was no secret, they talked out loud about their plans for overcoming the wildly popular Democrat nominee for governor, and they, and they thought about it. They said, who can we get to beat this candidate? And people started saying, Ditka. Let's get Coach Ditka. You know, from the Bears. The 1985 Bears football coach, Mike Ditka. He led the Bears to the Super Bowl, and they won. Or you might say that uh, other people helped lead the team, too. But nevertheless, he was famous in Chicago. So famous that it's Ditka and Jesus. They're right there together. People didn't know what Ditka's policies were or what his legislation would be like. They thought he conservative, but they thought it's a way to stack the deck against the Dems. They wanted to stack the deck. Have you ever heard of that phrase, stacking the deck? Sounds like a modern phrase for how we can kind of strengthen our position to outflank and beat down the opposition. Some new ideas are actually ancient. You see, in our text this morning, we have a case of an Egyptian pharaoh who wanted to stack the deck against people who lived with inside his kingdom, people that you and I call Hebrews. Look at verses 8 through 11 to see how he wishes to stack the deck against them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Don't forget about how the Hebrews got to Egypt. You see, a long time ago in their history, there was a man named Joseph, a younger son, who was sold into slavery by his 11 older, jealous brothers. He found himself in Egypt, and he climbed the ladder and became one of these great advisors to Pharaoh. In fact, Pharaoh really trusted most things that he would say. And one day, one time, one period, a famine fell on the land of Canaan, or Israel, the land that God had made for his people. And so his brothers, who had once sold him into slavery, led their people down towards Egypt to beg. They didn't know it, but it was their brother who was there who could give them provision. And forgiveness was done, and the rest of the people of God were allowed to come and live in Egypt. And they did wonderfully for some time. Our text tells us that there's a change in dynasty, perhaps. We don't exactly know, but there's a new pharaoh, a new power broker in charge of Egypt. And he didn't know this Hebrew who had been entrusted by pharaohs before him. And he didn't like that in his city walls there was a foreign population. Continue reading with me. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we. I tend to think of that as an over-exaggeration, but leaders can be paranoid. 
Verse 10, come let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. He was thinking real strategically. He wondered that if they were ever at war with a foreign invader, maybe these Hebrews from the inside might take up arms and fight against his own people. So he said, let's stack the deck against them. Let's deal shrewdly with them. They went from being free people to being people of bondage here, and they were given work that was near impossible to do and work that would keep their spirits down, or so he thought. But you know what happens so often when people are put through pressure or when boundaries are tightened. You know what happens, don't you? Flourishing, creativity. It is the great wine that has the tough soil to work through. And it is the great work of artists who had rules and constraints to make creativity sing. I once went to a movie called, well, I'll tell you about what it was called in a moment. I went to the Avon Theater in Decatur, Illinois. It's this old historic theater. They like to talk about it as being haunted. It's got one screen, great popcorn, good place to see a show. And this was in the era when there's this crass television cartoon called Family Guy was real popular. The first two seasons of Family Guy were quite clever, quite funny. And then it went off the air, but it went viral. Everyone wanted it back, and so the networks, well, they gave the people what they wanted, and they thought, well, this thing does so well, we're going to take away a lot of the, well, restrictions we've put on the show's blue humor and offensive language and so on. And so what happened was, if you watch the show, and I don't recommend anybody to watch the show, it's mind-numbingly dumb, but what happens when you watch it is the humor has just fallen all the way down because there are no limits. It's in a world of limits where creativity often happens and flourishing happens. That night I went in that world to, went to a movie called Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Have any of you seen that film? Some of you need to get some culture. Go rent that movie. There were a lot of constraints on Abbott and Costello for the humor. It couldn't be blue. The language could not be sexual in nature. I watched them work really hard to manipulate English language to be more punny. I saw them use faces and body uh, images and shapes to be humorous. And I laughed with delight at somebody who had to work around all the rules to make me laugh. The people of God were pressed in on all sides, but it did not keep them down. Look with me at verse 12. The scripture tells us how they flourish even still. But the more they were oppressed, the text tells us, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians were harsh, but they went much further than being harsh in our story. You see, Pharaoh calls the midwives over to him and says, I want you to, anytime you see a male boy, I want you to kill him. Let the girls live. And with that, we have a political power tipping its hand. It won't stop at evil to get its way. Now, there's something about the midwives here that's quite important to note. They feared the Lord. They feared the Lord, the God of all creation, much more than they feared the power of Pharaoh, though he was terrifying indeed. So they wouldn't do it. They disobeyed. They didn't kill these little boys. And so Pharaoh calls them over and says, why did you let these boys live? 
then came the lie. You were taught in Sunday school that lying is always wrong, weren't you? But here it is. Some people who lie, and God seems to be okay, they say, well, Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are a little bit different than the Egyptian women. You see, they're so vigorous. They're just so vigorous that, that by the time we get to them, they've already pushed the babies out. We couldn't do anything about it. And with that, the little lie, God's people grow in number and they become a force. Scripture goes further telling us that, that God blesses these midwives for their lie, for their trick, for their civil disobedience. He gives them a family of their own. Pharaoh didn't stop, though, you see. He sought what he wanted to seek, and he had other plans up his sleeve. He commands that all the baby boys of the Hebrews be tossed in the great river Nile. Pharaoh won't stop at getting what he wants. People with that kind of power won't stop, no matter how bad they look, in the pursuit of getting what they want. I grew up in a factory town, and I remember one day the big news hit the TV, and everyone was watching it. Teachers were watching it. The whole economy of our community rests on this particular factory, and the CEO came out and said, I don't want to hear any more business about fair wages. People get paid fairly. If you don't want it, go another place. You get another job. So all the people go on strike, right? And you could drive through the area of town where the factory was and see all the employees out there with a bunch of letters that represented their union and a bunch of lunch boxes just holding up signs, asking people to honk. And then finally, I saw another commercial or another news uh, story where the, the CEO comes on and he shows how strong he is. And he says, they're going to come back to work because they need money. And if they don't come back, we'll hire scab employees. We'll hire scabs. It will get done. Eventually, that's what had happened. He hired the scabs, and then the people were now protesting the scab employees, and that CEO came back on TV, and he says, nothing will stop production. People in places of power will often strive to get what they want, just like Pharaoh here, only he went so much further. You know how the rest of the story shakes out, don't you? Moses' mother, Moses being one of these baby boys, she looked at her son and saw him healthy, so she fashioned for him a little basket after hiding him for the period of three months. She put him in the great river Nile and prayed, prayed to her God that, that he would be safe wherever he landed. Big sister followed behind. You know how big sisters are. She wanted to make sure that nothing bad was going to happen to baby brother. And at one moment, perhaps providentially, Little Moses came floating by where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing, and she had a big heart. She took the little baby and delighted and wondered, well, this must be a Hebrew child. I wonder who can nurse him. Big sister behind the bushes clears her throat <clears throat> just loud enough so that she can be heard and says, yeah, do you want me to go find someone to nurse him for you? I, I, can, do, I can do that for you. And so she says, yes. And with that, Moses is back home with his mother being nursed. And with that, Moses gets to have a, a good life being raised both in his own world and in the house of Pharaoh. And with that, after this little act of civil disobedience, we have God's future leader saved. We have God's lawgiver protected. We have the man and voice of God in the home of his enemy. Typically, friends, 
submission is what we're called to do when it comes to earthly authorities. God commands for us to be good citizens. God commands us to submit and not to, to just do what we will. We find that in the New Testament. But there are times when we find that the earthly powers are unjust. There are times when the principalities of our world do not share God's good end for things. Pharaoh was unjust, for he wanted to abort babies, and when that didn't work, he called for their infanticide evil. And the midwives disobeyed. Holy. Imperial Rome promoted slavery. Wrong. Pardon me. I wanted to say Imperial Europe wanted to promote slavery. But people like William Wilberforce stood against it. This is just. Hitler demanded nationalist faith to the point of genocide. Wicked. Men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke against it and was killed for trying to stop it. Holy. Oscar Romero held up the Eucharist in peace while the world around him was being shot up by imperialists and communist guerrillas. Violent. Sometimes the solidarity that men like he showed will get you killed. Dark skins were separated and put on the back of buses. Wrong. Rosa Parks ignored. Brave. Sometimes civil disobedience is the most holy witness that one can make to God's ineffable desire for peace and unity and justice. That's what these brave women did in Egypt. They could have been a part of a system of injustice one that was idolatrous and ultimately evil, but they peacefully disobeyed because God is the one who sets the course for right and wrong above all others, and they had a higher calling from God. Now, this is tough stuff, church. This is hard because we know that we can easily point out when it's right to do this and wrong to do this with the gifts of hindsight where we have the luxury of sorting out history and facts and motives. We can look back and note that all these cases that I mentioned, they were fine. They were fine ways to be disobedient. But the harder question is, what about in the moment? What about in your now, in your present? When situations confront you on all sides and you have to ask yourself, should I or should I not? Should I say no when all the world around me is saying yes? Should I say yes? when all the world around me is saying no? Does Christ call me to radically unpopular ideas like being conscientious objectors during wartime? Or will I kowtow to the names that people call me, the labels they give me? Such questions are infinitely more difficult to discern and answer in the moment than when you have the gift of hindsight. I suspect it was hard in the moment for that young girl in the communist Asian country when she was part of a house church that was underground, illegal. 
one day a general and some military police force came to the house because they got wind of this church group and they called everyone out onto the uh, brown dirt gravel street whatever it was a dirty road and there's the church here and facing the church and I mean the church I mean the people I don't mean any building there was the church the people were here and across them was a tank and they were all told that they had to spit on a Bible that was between the people and the tank. Denounce their faith, if you will, with this garish act. Or die. I think in the moment it would be really easy to justify things like, I'm a father. I cannot be killed. Jesus will understand. Or you think maybe even be strategic pastor. You know, it's better for me to live and fight another day than it is to, to go out now. There's lots of things I could use to justify it because friends, I probably would. Moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandparents walk by and they spat upon the Bible to live to see another day. And this little girl walked over to it and for her, she could not deny her God. Not even to live another day. And for her, the Bible was this image, a symbol of God. So she knelt down and she wiped off that Bible and she says, what have they done to you? And she hugged it and she died. Hard is it in the moment to know right when you should be disobedient to powers that are evil, to forces that say they're good, but you know they don't compare to the gospel. Hard in the moment. So how? How do you develop the spiritual muscles to go against the crowd when the crowd is going against God? I might suggest for us this morning a re-up in liturgical training. You see, everything that we do in worship is called the liturgy. It means, it's Greek word, it means the work of the people. It's that which we cannot do on our own. Everything we do here is really, really important. You come here and you sit in silence for a reason at the beginning of service. You, prayers are put in your mouth. We've asked you to say a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that confesses that you have sinned by doing some things and by not doing others. We ask you to pray prayers that say, God, bring your kingdom here right now and in this place. Have you even thought about what that means? You ought to. We say that the most important act of resistance in our world against injustice is what we do at the table. We actually are acting out in resistance against a world of hate. We put ourselves under the authority of the text of Scripture. I hold it up each week. Say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let its words transform me. But here's the thing. You can go to church on Sunday, and you can do all that, and you can even think about it. And maybe if we're lucky, you go to Sunday school. Please go to Sunday school. Or maybe if we're lucky you have a small group and you study the Bible, please do that. And then if I'm even more lucky, you have a five-minute morning devotional, usually by yourself without the reflection of other people telling you you're wrong on how you understand it. But forget about that for a moment. If I'm lucky, that's what we got. And if that's what we have, I can still guarantee you that you probably hear more talk radio, more news TV, more sitcoms, the ideas of people at the mechanic shop than you hear of anything here. 
We have ideas and ideologies, informative notions that come into us all the time, and they take root in us. But friends, you and I, we need to get stronger liturgically, spiritually. We need to have that gospel muscle built inside of us so that in the moment when it comes to us, we react correctly. We need to be so strong that we look at ourselves in the mirror to ask, are the ideas I'm playing with even gospel-oriented? Friends, here's what I ask you to do with me. This text threatens me. It's a text that tells me sometimes I've got to be civilly disobedient. I don't want to be. Sometimes I've got to learn to say no, and sometimes I've got to learn to say yes, and I'm scared. Okay. But will you with me start by saying yes to God? Take my mouth and take my feet and make me go and speak the way you want me to speak. And will you with me commit to a new workout regimen of thinking through more critically about what we think and how we train spiritually so that in the moment we don't question. We know how to stand up for God in God's world the way God wants us to. God bless you.